Welcome back. This is Sam. And this is Corrine, and we are two Ducks. So this week's episode, we're going to be focusing on chronic myeloid leukemia, otherwise known as CML, for the rest of this episode. We're going to go into all the important details on the genetics of CML, which is highly testable, and we should all remember that from our med school days, the diagnosis, and the treatment of CML. And so to start us off, out, what is CML? So CML at its most basic is a clonal myeloproliferative disorder with the hallmark cytogenetics of the Philadelphia chromosome. Ooh, yes. We've definitely heard about the Philadelphia chromosome since medical school. So what is this? Great question. So the Philadelphia chromosome is the molecular fingerprint, and this is the translocation between chromosome 22, which is the BCR gene, and chromosome 9, which is the oncogene ABL. And so this is translocation 922, and that puts together the BCR ABL, and that translates an abnormal function protein. Usually, our transcript protein is in the flavor of P210 BCR ABL, and that's what we see most commonly in CML, but there's also two other flavors. One of them is the 230, and that's seen in chronic neutrophilia, and then also 190, which is most commonly seen in Philadelphia positive ALL, which we'll talk about in another episode. One important thing to note, all things in medicine, nothing is a never and an always. And so this is true to form here in CML also. So about 90% of CML patients have Philadelphia positive chromosome, but there is still the 10% that are Philadelphia negative. This is important for the real world. So don't count out CML if there's not the Philadelphia chromosome, but for the case of your boards, I think that they'll give it to you in your vignettes. Yeah, absolutely. And I also just wanted to add that the CSF3R mutation is detected in some of the atypical CML cases and also closely linked with chronic neutrophilic leukemia. So I feel like we got asked that question. So commit that to memory as well. And so what are the symptoms of CML? Yeah. So most of our patients with CML, about 50% of them are actually completely asymptomatic. CML can be diagnosed um, on patients when they are having their routine labs with their primary care once a year. um, And thankfully they don't have any symptoms. If patients do have symptoms, it can be abdominal discomfort from organomegaly. So these patients can have larger spleens, which can lead to fullness after eating, hepatomegaly, which can also lead to fullness in the abdomen. So very vague symptoms. CML does have leukocytosis and a hypercellular bone marrow, but patients won't feel that. Yeah, definitely. And so how do we diagnose CML? So at our core, we love our CBCs with differentials. And so that is the first thing that we need to get when we're thinking about CML and actually how it is mostly diagnosed. Next, we need to get a blood smear to look at those white blood cells and then also a bone marrow biopsy to assess the percentage of blasts in the marrow, do a chromosome analysis, FISH, and a qualitative PCR, which detects the BCR-ABLE transcripts. The CML cells, they are positive for CD10, CD19, and CD20 into Indicating that they are a mature cell. And are there different phases of CML? Well, of course there are. And so thankfully, most commonly, our patients or patients with CML are diagnosed in the chronic phase. And so the chronic phase is defined as having less than 10% blasts in the peripheral blood or the bone marrow. Again, majority of patients are living in chronic phase. They're asymptomatic for 
if treated, and they can be in that chronic phase for years, which is terrific. There's also the accelerated phase, which is defined by BLAST being greater than 10%, but less than 20%, or BLAST plus promyelocytes being greater than 30%, basophils being greater than 20%. And that one I would highlight because I do know that we've been asked that on either our IT or our boards as the the flagging indicator of accelerated phase, or having the platelets less than 100,000. Blast phase is the last phase that we talk about, and that's when the blasts are greater than 20%. Some criteria say greater than 30% or extramedullary disease. These truly act more like acute leukemics um, rather than our chronic phase CMLs. Um, And so the rate of transformation from chronic phase to either accelerated or blast phase is approximately 1% annually per year. These are important. I definitely feel like I was asked this question by multiple attendings, both in internal medicine residency and as a fellow. So have an idea of these classifications. And so this brings us to the bulk of the episode, which is treatment. What are the treatment options for CML? Yeah. So the treatment for CML really was groundbreaking. And this is why we all learned about the Philadelphia chromosome in medical school. We remember it from step one, because this was the, one of the first times that we could create a targeted drug for a um, mutation and have it work so well. So this really was a game changer for oncology and has paved the way for further targeted therapies. And so before we dive in, I think that's important to note that as we're treating CML, the clones can create new mutations. And these new mutations can lead to TKI resistance. So if a patient loses their complete response, always be on the lookout for checking for new mutations and switching their TKIs accordingly. So I've said TKI twice. And so that is the backbone of how we treat CML. It is a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And what these drugs do is they bind to the ATP site of the BCR able oncoprotein and stop that activity at its core. Our first generation TKI targeting the BCR able is the first drug that we came about, and that's imatinib. The standard dose of imatinib is 400 milligrams per day, but it can be increased to 600 milligrams or 800 milligrams. And then outside of that, we have our second generation TKIs, which were built based on mutational profiles that developed after people were being treated with imatinib. So if someone has a V299L, a T315A, or an F317L, they can utilize the drug nilotinib. If someone has a T253H, an E255K, an F359V, the drugs that they can utilize are dasatinib, basutinib, or omcetaxine which is a protein synthesis inhibitor. If someone has the F317L mutation, they can have basutinib, nilotinib, or the omcetaxane. And the most important mutation that I think is heavily tested because there is one drug for one point mutation is the T315I mutation. And that is panotinib. And so panotinib was invented for this mutation specifically. And it also has some pretty scary um, possible risks. So it's something that I'll talk about with toxicity. These two. Yeah, if you're going to remember one mutation, remember that 315I with the panatinib. And so this next part is very high yield in terms of testable questions and also important to monitor in our patients. So, what are the toxicities of TKIs? 
So toxicities in general for TKIs, because not only do they hit that BRCA-ABLE oncogene, but they also hit other kinase or tyrosine kinases. And so in general, they can all cause myelosuppression. They can all cause fetal harm. So it's important because some patients are in the reproductive ages and diagnosed with CML. So you do not want patients getting pregnant on these drugs. It can cause hypertension, diarrhea, and swelling. The swelling can be ankle swelling, leg swelling, but the most common one that we talk about, and if they were to show you a picture on the boards, would be periorbital edema, so the swelling around the eyes. More specifically, our first generation of matinib, it can cause edema and hepatotoxicity. Dasatinib can cause pleural effusions and pulmonary hypertension, so think about the lungs with dasatinib. They can also cause QT prolongation, cardiac dysfunction, or bleeding events. So think within the chest cavity for dasatinib. Nilotinib has a black box warning for QT prolongation. When there is a black box warning on a drug, that is the highest testable toxicity that they can ask about on the boards because these are things that we should be aware of. And nilotinib along with the QT prolongation can also cause hepatotoxicity, pancreatitis, and puritis, as well as rash. Basutinib is most common culprit for diarrhea. So I lovingly called this one buttsutinib when I was a fellow trying to remember toxicities. It can also cause rash and elevated LFTs. And then the panotinib has a black box warning. Again, this should be raising your ears, highlighting bolding for arterial and venous thrombosis. So not only venous thrombosis, but arterial, which does not happen commonly. Panotinib can also cause heart failure, hepatotoxicity, and pancreatitis. Yeah, extremely important and make sure that you re-listen to this part of the episode. And so how do we evaluate a response to treatment? Great question. And this is also where a lot of new studies have come into play for CML. So we measure the number of leukemic cells with PCR, which is the most sensitive way of looking at them. We can also do fish and cytogenetics. So the depth of response is defined in three different ways. The first is hematologic response. And this we typically see on our CBC with diff. And so that's when our white blood cells have gone back down to less than 10. Our platelets are less than 450,000. We have no peripheral blasts or promyl and the basophils are less than 20%. We also have cytogenetic responses, which is based on standard karyotyping of 20 metaphase. And so complete responses defined by 0% being Philadelphia positive in metaphase, Partial response is 1% to 35% being Philadelphia positive in metaphase, and minor response is 36 to 95 Philadelphia positive in metaphase. The last way that we look at responses is molecular response, and this is with PCR, very sensitive, and we're looking for three and four log reductions. And so what we typically do is we monitor the PCR every three months for two years, um, after even after the BCR ABLE is less than 1%. And then at that point at the two-year mark, If it's less than 1%, you can space them out to every three to six months. Yeah, absolutely. And so what are our treatment timeline goals? This is extremely important to know and be aware of. So our timeline goals, because we want to achieve a complete response as quick as possible. So the first one is achieving complete hematologic response. So that's based off our CBC, as well as 90% reduction in the CML clone at three months. 
We also want to achieve a complete cytogenetic response by fish at 12 months or a two log reduction of the BCR able transcript level. The last thing that we want to do is we want to achieve a major molecular response, aka having Philadelphia positivity less than 0.1%, or this is our three log reduction in the Philadelphia positive clones via PCR at 18 months. So three months, 12 months, and 18 months. If these goals are not met, again, check the bone marrow, check the cytogenetics, look for those mutations leading to resistance of the TKIs. Yeah, definitely remember how you assess the response. And so what is the criteria for stopping a TKI? We can consider stopping a TKI if you've had more than four log reductions over two years, but you have to check the BCR ABLE monthly for possible relapse. And then outside of TKIs, do we have any other treatment options? So one can consider doing an allogeneic stem cell transplant. And this actually is the first line treatment for kids who are affected by CML or adults who've progressed to the accelerated or blastic phase while on a TKI or those with the T315I mutation. So again, once you hit that accelerated or blastic phase, we start thinking about these more like acute leukemics um, where we can utilize chemotherapy and stem cell transplant. And so that was a wonderful overview of CML. And what are our key takeaways? So the biggest key takeaway for CML is I think that we need to realize there are different phases of CML. Majority of them are diagnosed in chronic phase, and we want to keep everyone in chronic phase for as long as possible because they're asymptomatic. There's also the accelerated phase and blastic phase. And so knowing their criteria for each of those phases is going to be very important walking into your boards. There's treatment options, which are the big um, breakthrough that we've had with CML. And this also is a big breakthrough for medicine in general, which is why we all learned about them early on. And that's targeted therapy with TKIs. And so the TKI medications, they target against the BCR-ABLE oncogene. We also need to know about the toxicities of the TKIs. And we also need to know about the specific mutations for each of those the second generation TKIs. We also need to think about cytogenetic complete response, which is our gold standard because we do know that it improves overall survival and that the deeper response improves event-free survival. So not only are we going for a quick complete um, cytogenetic response, but also a very deep response. So know those um, key time points at three months, 12 months, and 18 months. Early response to TKIs within the three to six month is predictive, and so that portends to a better response overall. Always be on the lookout for resistance mutations and switch the TKIs accordingly. So if someone's in a complete response and you start to see them come out of it, look for those mutations and switch the TKIs. For accelerated phase, you can treat with a TKI or stem cell transplant. And blastic phase, again, treat with a TKI plus minus chemotherapy and a stem cell transplant. So treated more like an acute leukemic rather than the chronic CML patients. Absolutely. So that was a great overview. As always, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Good luck with your studying and please feel free to reach out to us with any corrections or comments on our Instagram or Twitter to OncDocs. Have a great week guys. And we'll, we'll talk to you next Monday. <laughs>